God cannot use a man until he gets him on holy ground. A holy God must have a holy man on holy ground. These were the words of Reverend David Wilkinson. He was speaking, obviously, not so much about a physical ground as he was talking about a spiritual one. And so with the Holy Spirit's help this morning, we want to visit just such a place, holy ground. We are in Joshua chapter 5, uh, reading verses 1 through 15. And by the way, may I ask, how many of you remembered the prayer challenge that we gave last week, and how many of you remembered to pray it? Yes, I see some hands. Great, great. Would you join me in please standing, if you will? I'm going to have all of the young adults read uh, the opening paragraph, and the men will read the uh, other paragraph, women, and so on, until we get uh, to the end. Beginning now. Man. Women. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, 
are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. If holy ground is a spiritual place and you are standing on it, then I believe that these three things must be true. One, someone must have made that ground holy and it wasn't you. Secondly, something is required of you in response to you being on holy ground. Thirdly, you are being prepared for some future thing that God wants you to do. So just keep those three things in mind as we move forward. Someone must have made that ground on which you stand holy, and it was not you. Something is required of you in response to you being on holy ground. And God is preparing you for something he would have you do in the future. So the Jordan River is now behind you. You are camped out at a place called Gilgal, the place where you built 12 stones as a memorial for God having miraculously dried up the Jordan River and brought you safely over. You set up a tabernacle of worship, the place where you would encounter God every time that you went there to offer sacrifices. It's not long until your enemies hear of what God had done for you. And what they hear is that God had in fact dried up miraculously, miraculously dried up the river and caused you to get over on dry ground. Now notice that they hear that it was the Lord who had done that. Not one of their gods, but the Lord. And what's their response to all of that? Their response is one of fear. Their hearts melt. There's no spirit left in them. Their mojo, if you will, has left. There's no will to fight. Because you see, God has a way of doing that to people who rise up against you. He takes away their fight. He instills fear in them. And their hearts melt. Now, if you are on holy ground, I believe this is what God, first of all, wants you to do. God requires you to receive a new identity. Notice that I said, I use the word receive and not work for. God wants you to receive a new identity, not work for it. Because you see, receiving is something that's being done to you or done for you. Receiving this new identity is painful. It targets a very sensitive area of your person. I'm talking about circumcision. Look at verse 2. Make flint knives, God says to Joshua, and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now why does God require 
the pain of circumcision for his people. The first time that we see this practice in scripture is in Genesis chapter 17. God commands Abraham to do it to himself and to do it to his son Isaac as a covenant sign, a sign of the relationship that God was going to have with Abraham and his descendants moving forward. We see it again in chapter 34 of Genesis when the men of Shechem allowed the Israelites to circumcise them because Shechem wants to marry Dinah, who is Jacob's daughter, after having raped her. And so the men, I mean, uh, Jacob's sons uh, made a, or forced, if you will, or tricked, perhaps a better word, the men of Shechem into allowing them to circumcise, uh, circumcise him. We see it again in Exodus chapter 4, where Moses seems to be too afraid to circumcise his son. He can't endure the pain of it, and so he allows or asks his wife to do it instead. Go figure. How does that work out in your household when you as a man are too afraid to do something and you ask your wife to do it? (laughs) And so as if the first time of circumcising the Israelites wasn't enough, God says to Joshua, I want you to circumcise them a second time. Now, how can a man be circumcised twice? The logical answer to that question is that by the sons of Israel, God means the second generation, those who had not been circumcised the first time. And so Gibeath Hereloth, which means hill of foreskins, is how we know that Joshua went and did exactly what God asked him to do. He was obedient. He circumcised the men because the previous generations, they had the marks of God's people, but they did not live as God's people. Look at verses 4 through 6. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the males of the people who came out of Egypt. That phrase is going to recur five times in our text. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. All the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, the emphasis here is on those who came out of Egypt. They left Egypt behind. And so among those who came out of Egypt are the men of war who died in the wilderness because of their disobedience and the ones who were born on the way in the wilderness. Now, what's the point here? It is this. If you have come out of Egypt, if you have left behind the lifestyle of Egypt, if you would be a holy people unto the Lord, then be circumcised. Allow the Holy Spirit to cut away from your your flesh, painful as it is, 
the things of Egypt that God calls a reproach. Let me say that again. Allow the Holy Spirit, painful as it is, to cut away from your flesh, to cut away from your lives those things that God considers to be a reproach. And so 40 years is a long time to be living with a reproach. Wouldn't you say 40 years? That's a generation. God must remove that reproach first. And so he does that through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the ongoing work of circumcision that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives as we submit to that process, as we let him. So if you're going to be on holy ground, you must first do that. You must first receive through circumcision this new identity that God is offering. Now, if you're going to be in holy ground, here's the second thing that God is going to require of you, and he does require of you. He calls you to a new ritual. Verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now, if you were an Israelite, you would remember that the first Passover you ever celebrated was on the very last night that you spent in Egypt. God had commanded you to kill a lamb at sundown. All of the family did that. And they were to sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the doorposts before going to bed that night because that very night while you were asleep, God's death angel would pass over and kill every firstborn in every family in the land of Egypt. But when he came to your house and realized that your house, the doorpost of your house, had the blood of the lamb on it, he passed over it. Didn't destroy that. And so on the 14th day of the month, they are here now at Gilgal, and they are celebrating the Passover to remind them of what had happened in Egypt. And so every Jewish household would separate from the flocks a a lamb of about a year old without any defect at all, without any blemish. All the members of that family were responsible for coming together and slaughtering that lamb. They were to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts. That same night they were to eat the meat that was roasted over the fire, they were not to have it boiled. It was to be roasted. It was to be roasted with bitter herbs and, and bread that was made without yeast. They were not to leave any of it, of it until the morning. In fact, if any of it was left, they were to burn it with fire. They were to eat it in haste with their cloaks on and their shoes on their feet. And this was to become a lasting ordinance for them. They were to do it the 14th day of every month. And so here they are at Gilgal, and they're doing the exact thing that God has asked them to do, which is to celebrate the Passover. Now, why 
Why do we, seven, several thousands of years after this, why do we gather here on the first day of every week? Why? Not just to see one another, which is good, and I love to see all of you every Sunday, and I hope you love to see me. It's not just out of habit, is it? It is not just to give to God one obligatory hour of every week. It is to remember. To remember our deliverance from Egypt. To remember what it was like under our former taskmaster who tormented us. Who exacted hard labor from us. To remember how we groaned under that taskmaster. I'm not talking in literal terms, now I'm talking figurative. What it was like under the former enslavement of sin. To remember how the cross became stained with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that when our lives came into contact with that cross and was stained by his blood, our reproach was taken away. We were forgiven. The death angel was silenced. We were free. That is why we come each Sunday, to celebrate that as we remember what Jesus did for us. Not Don't let any one of us forget that. Let that be the primary reason why we are together each Sunday. If you're going to be on holy ground, God will require a third thing from you. He wants you to take off your shoes. Last part of the chapter, we read it earlier. This encounter between Joshua and this mysterious man. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, meaning neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the ground and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Now have you ever had an encounter that was so powerful that it takes three descriptive verbs to capture that experience? For Joshua... He lifted up his eyes, he looked, and he beheld. Three descriptive verbs. This man had a sword in his hand that was drawn and at the ready. He was willing to stop Joshua from coming any closer. Now, this is not the first time in scripture that we see a man with a drawn sword blocking someone's advance. So after expelling Adam and Eve from the garden, we're told that there was an angel that stood at the entrance of the garden with a flaming sword turning in every direction to prevent Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden. Then we're told of a prophet named Balaam who was commissioned to go and curse God's people. And as he was on his way riding on his donkey to curse God's people, the donkey sees in the distance 
an angel standing with a, flame, with a flaming sword, a sword that was drawn. Balaam doesn't see it, but the donkey does. Joshua wants to advance upon Jericho. He wants to um, engage Jericho. He wants to fight against them. He wants to go forward. But before he can do that, he sees before him a man with a drawn sword saying to him, come any further and you're a dead man. Now you may be, you may have been contemplating some course of action. And God has been dispatching angel after angel after angel after angel with a drawn sword to block your attempts at moving forward. But you are intent on going your own way and doing your own thing anyway. God might just be saying to you this morning, go no further. Stop. Pay attention. There's something I want to say to you. The man asked Joshua, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Joshua wants to know whose side the man is on. Are you on my side or are you fighting against me? And so if the man is for Joshua, Joshua can elicit his help in um, going up and fighting against Jericho. If the man is for Joshua's enemies, Joshua is prepared to fight him. He's, he's prepared to take this on in his own strength. I want to say to us this morning, never make the mistake of thinking that this battle called the Christian life is your fight. It is not. You are merely a recruit in this fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. You need to give your allegiance to him rather than demanding that God give, give you his allegiance. I think many of us sometimes have that, you know, the other way around, the opposite of how it should be. We need to be giving God our allegiance rather than expecting God to give us his. We are merely recruits in his battle. And so the man identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. If he is the commander of the army of the Lord, then it means that he has all of heaven's armies at his disposal. Now don't, don't take it as nothing that in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, God describes himself, himself as the Lord of hosts. The message version renders that the, the God of angel armies. He commands armies. So let's fast forward to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, where Jesus is now appropriately given the title of captain or commander, if you will, of our salvation. He is the author and pioneer of our faith. And as he's doing that, he is perfecting or he's making perfect those whose trust and hope are in him. And so the commander is evidently the pre-incarnate son of God, that is God before he became flesh. He is prepared to go to war, but not on Joshua's side. God does not have allegiance to anyone. He is God. He does not swear allegiance to anybody. Instead, he's providing Joshua with the opportunity to join his fight, rather than expecting him to join Joshua's fight. I want us to look finally at Joshua's response. 
He falls face down before God out of respect for him. Again, this is not the first time we see this occurring in Scripture. We see it in the case of Abraham, when God promised Abraham to establish his covenant with him and to bless him and make him the father of many nations. Abraham's response was to fall face down before God. Moses hid his face and was afraid to look, so he falls face down before God. Joshua does the same thing before the commander of angel armies, calling him my Lord and calling himself my servant. Because when you are in the presence of a captain, that is what you do. Saul, on the road to Damascus, falls from his horse, and when he hears this voice speaking to him, he falls face down. What will you have me to do, Lord, he asks. I want to say to us this morning, God is not just satisfied to be the commander of angel armies. He wants to be commander of your life. Take off your sandals. Take them off as a sign of respect, as an acknowledgement that you are in the presence of someone superior to you. You're in the presence of someone whose very presence makes the ground on which you are standing holy. If you keep your dirty shoes on, that is a sign of disrespect. Remove them. For Joshua, it was his shoes. For you, what might that be? What might God be asking you to remove this morning? God can't use a man until he gets him on holy ground. A holy God must have a holy man on holy ground. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Holy ground demands holy being and holy living. Here are our application points. First of which is this. I want to say to you this morning, if you're here and you do not yet know Jesus Christ, this is a perfect opportunity to bow before the commanding officer. If you have discovered that you keep bumping up against the one who wants to be the commander of your soul, if you have discovered that, you keep bumping up to him. If what you want is opposite to what he wants, if you want to do this, but he wants you to do that, if you want to go here, but he wants you to go there, then that is a very good indication that you are at odds with him. You must decide. There must be a decision that you make. If you go any further along the road that you're heading, uh, heading up on, you've, you may very well be running up against this drawn sword that says to you, go any further and you're a dead man. I don't mean to be crass this morning, but the reality is if you keep resisting and rejecting and thumbing your nose at God, you may very well find that the consequences of your decision are dire. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. Just bow. Bow in the presence of your commanding officer and ask him to become the commander of your soul and the commander of your life. That is what he wants. That's all he wants. Your submission. See anybody here this morning that wants 
to submit to their commanding officer. With your heads bowed, is the Holy Spirit knocking gently on your soul and saying, this is the time. This is the time. I'm not angry with you. I love you. I only desire to forgive your sins and to give you peace and to direct your life from now on. Is there any person here this morning who wants, in response to the Holy Spirit, to say, yes, I need Jesus to become my commanding officer? May I see your hand? Yes. Is there anyone else? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you died on the cross to remove our reproach, our sins. Because of Jesus, we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled with God. We can have peace. Father, for that young man who raised his hand, I pray that that would be his experience today. That from now on, you would be his commanding officer, that he would submit to your authority in his life. That he may experience everything that you have for him as he walks this road with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our second application point. Ask the Holy Spirit to sanctify you completely. It's a prayer. Ask him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, we find this prayer that Paul prays for his church. This might very well be the prayer that we need to pray this week, every day this week. Paul prays this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that you have been saved through faith alone. But you are sanctified through the Holy Spirit alone. I came across this quotation by Reverend Tim Keller this week. You are saved by faith alone, he says, but if you are not getting sanctified, you don't have saving faith. In other words, if you claim that you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ does in fact save us. If you make that claim, then there is a second evidential reality that is happening in your life, that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. He is making you more like Jesus every day. He is cutting away from your flesh those things that are offensive, those things that are reproach those things that are contrary to the spirit of holiness, and he is replacing those things with behaviors that the Bible calls the fruit of the spirit. Pray that prayer every day this week, that the Holy Spirit would sanctify you completely, body, soul, and spirit. Is there anyone here this morning who kind of feels like there is something more than this. There's, there's something deeper. There's a deeper work that the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in me. I have not experienced it yet, but I just know that the Holy Spirit is calling me to something deeper.
that speaks to you this morning, this is the prayer that you must pray. Father, I pray that this reality that is captured in Paul's prayer would be captured in each one of us who have been saved. God help us not just to stay there in that experience, but to allow the Holy Spirit to take us into a deeper level of discipleship where the Holy Spirit is producing in us the qualities of the Spirit so that we are looking more and more like Jesus every day. Grant it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Here's our third application point. Allow your memory of the Lamb, capital L, to drive your obedient worship. I take you to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Paul makes some very bold statements. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, I said Paul. I mean, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes some very bold declarations there. In fact, commands, if you will. He says, let us, so he's talking to a group of people who are believers. He says, let us consider, it means then, let us pay attention, let us ponder these things. What things? Let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another. The King James Version says, let us spur one another on. I like that more, I like that better. Because you know, those of you who are horse lovers and you ride horses, that you have spurs on your boots, right? And when you dig your spurs into that horse, that is an indication that you want that, that horse to move forward. That's the idea that is captured here. Let us, let us as a body of believers consider or pay attention to how we can spur one another on to love and good works. And hopefully that is what we're doing each Sunday as we come together. We're spurring one another on. There's, there's accountability that is happening as we come, come together. And then he goes on to say, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. In other words, there are some people who are absenting themselves from the body of Christ from the worship experience that we, we experience every Sunday. Don't be like that. Don't, don't get caught up in that. And yes, there are legitimate reasons why we may be absent on a particular Sunday, caring for elderly parents, work, commitments, sickness, and things like that. I'm not, I'm not in any way taking anyone on a guilt trip. Don't hear, don't hear that at all. In fact, that was not the heart of the writer either. But he's saying, don't neglect meeting together as some people are doing. In other words, use this negative example of people absenting themselves from church. Use this negative example to spur you on to do the exact opposite. And then he goes on to say, but encouraging one another. When last have you done that? You called somebody up, sent a text to encourage them in their faith. Here's the reason why we must do that. Because the day, capital D, the day of the Lord, the day of God, the Lord's return, it is fast approaching. Hence the reason why we, mean we need to be so urgent and so desperate about doing that. Here's our final application point. Put on your feet shoes that are ready to spread the gospel of peace. Do you realize that the 
In the New Testament, we are told that God has committed to each of us, those of us who are his children, he has committed to us a new ministry. That ministry is called the ministry of reconciliation, meaning we have to be about the business of reconciling others to one another and to God. And so I want to ask you some questions. Who did you tell last week of how God delivered you from Egypt? Did you tell anyone about that at all? Who are you going to tell this week of how God took away your reproach, how he forgave your sins? When you get to heaven, is there anybody who will walk up to you and say to you, if it had not been for you telling me about Jesus, I would not be here. Is anybody going to be in heaven because you had a direct impact on them being there. God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. And so every day you get up, put on your feet the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace and be ready, be ready and willing to share the gospel with those who need it. Let us pray. Father, this morning, We have heard your word. You have spoken into our lives the truths that you wanted to share with us from your words. God, we are your children. We desire to leave this place obediently doing everything that you're asking us to do. For some of us, God, it might be you're asking us to do one thing. For some of us, you're asking us to do several things. Whatever it is, God, we pray that our hearts would be obedient. We pray that your word would soften our hearts. That your word would make us willing to be obedient. Lord, maybe you're wanting us to take off pride. Maybe you're wanting us to put off filthiness. Maybe you're wanting us, God, to put off anger. Maybe you're wanting us, God, to allow the Holy Spirit to have greater latitude in our lives as he's wanting to accomplish that work of sanctification in us. Whatever you're asking us to do, let there be a willingness to go forward and do it. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.